I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. For this episode, we're going to get a different perspective on the early days of no-till. For the first time in this series, Frank is talking with someone with a long history as an ag equipment dealer. In the mid-1960s, Ross Morgan of Hopkinsville, Kentucky started working at H&R AgriPower, which has 17 dealerships across six states. Based just down the road from Herndon, Kentucky, where the no-till movement got its start, H&R AgriPower had many opportunities over the years to work with no-till innovators Harry Young, Howard Martin, Eugene Keaton, Wesley Hunt, and Harry Deckler. In this episode, editor Frank Lesseter talks with Ross about how H&R AgriPower got involved with developing some of the innovative equipment that pushed no-till forward, such as refinements they made to no-till coulters, toolbars for multi-row configurations, seed meters, and more. They also talk about why Case IH took its first no-till planter off the market, the role of the combine in no-till systems, the four elements that are critical to even corn and soybean emergence, and much more. Here's Frank Lester with Ross Morgan. Well, we're talking to Ross today, and he's Hopkinsville, Kentucky, so it's just down the road from Harry Young's in Herndon, Kentucky, where it all got started. Tell us about uh, when you heard about no-till and how you got going in it. And You had a relative or somebody that worked at the Alice Chambers dealership, I think you told me. Yes, actually, my wife's father started H&R Implant Company in 1958. Prior to that, he had uh, worked at Planters Hardware that oh, was yeah. the Alice Chambers dealer. So uh, in those days, we all knew each other and, and, and talked about what was going on and were competitors as well. But yes, we were well acquainted with the people at Alice Chambers. And the dealerships you have now, how many dealerships are you? Uh, we have 17 dealerships. H&R AgriPower, and I don't own any part of that, but that's 17 dealerships today. Okay, and the major lines are what? Case IH primarily. We're Case IH at all locations. Okay, I thought I'd better ask before yes, I yes, just assumed yeah, that. Yes. When did you first hear or get to know about no-till? Mr. Young was, of course, the first one in the area, and I have to admit, I wasn't very close to that mm-hmm. uh, when that started, but uh, it was one of those things that was new and unusual and really didn't think that much about it. But as, as it progressed, of course, we were asked cell planters and Oliver developed a kit for their 540 planter. And we sold some kits for that. And then later, their 543 was their first commercial planter actually uh, built for no-till. And uh, during that time frame, we, we got interested in what was going on and, and uh, were playing around with some different ideas as well as several others in the area. Of course, you know about Howard Martin and uh, Eugene Keaton right. that were in adjoining county. And uh, I don't make any claim to knowing as much as they did, but <laughs> we were just guys on the sidelines looking at it. We, uh, Wesley Hunt, that's Wayne Oh, that's, you know what, I was trying to think of Wesley Hunt's name because they talk about three innovators down there, and it was Howard and Eugene and Wes. Yes, uh, Wesley and I were working on uh, a no-till coulter, per se, and and we primarily were planting no-till, there's double crop beans behind wheat. We uh, played with different apparatuses uh, to shear the residue. And uh, through that, we got fairly well acquainted with Harry Deckler, who was the Oliver 
planter engineer out of South Bend, Indiana at that time, who later went to work for Kinsey. For example, he got us, I think, probably 50 blades of a certain diameter sharpened on one side that we found would shear uh, better than a blade sharpened on both sides in our condition. And also a small diameter blade had a, a different angle at the angle of intersection and it didn't push as much of the residue in the seed trench. If we put the residue in the seed trench, it would uh, reduce our seed soil contact and, uh, and also dry out the trench via capillary attraction. And we also ran a small Danish tine behind that. We ran it about two inches deep to get better uh, seed soil contact. We tried a lot of things that, that didn't work, of course, as most everybody does. And after I wasted uh, quite a bit of money for me at the time <laughs> on trying to get a patent, my wife convinced me that I was on an ego trip. I wasn't an engineer. <laughs> I needed to let someone else uh, uh, develop it and we needed to sell it. But then later on, Wesley and I developed a toolbar that would convert a six row bar with a seven row tag bar into a 12 row planter. We actually ran that for a couple of years before Black introduced their, his machine, but we never did patent any part of that. In fact, uh, your son has a copy of the letter that uh, Harry Decker wrote me to tell me why that they weren't interested in that bar, which was, and he was right, it, it had limited application that a six row planter for planting beans was limited and they, they knew that. But uh, When you were talking about the colders um, and, and double cropping, one of the problems was hair pinning, wasn't it? That uh, where, where it pushed the straw down and you somehow had to figure out a way yes. to cut yes. the straw instead of pushing it into right. the seed trench. And to exaggerate, to illustrate a point, if you have a huge diameter blade, it forms an acute angle where it intersects with the ground and it shoves some of the residue in the ground. And even if it, if it sheared it off, but it shoved say an inch into the ground, it not only reduced seed soil contact, it dried the seed trench out via capillary attraction, which we didn't want. And the small diameter blade uh, would, would uh, help that. In fact, we sold, I don't know, probably 2,000 of those things. We made brackets and things that, uh, uh, and you, you could tell a difference. And we, we played with, with different things. We, we would try it without uh, the Danish tine side by side and, and uh, see what the difference was in emergence and in uh, plant growth. And Did planters with Alice Chambers kind of have the market at the start or not? Absolutely. Uh, Alice Chambers, as you well know, built uh, the first commercial no-till planter. And it basically, as I recall, or what we were told was a field cultivator or chisel, maybe is a, is a chisel plow frame. Right. Three bars, they put their culture on the front bar and they put a toolbar unit on the rear bar. And with that, they could get uh, multiple row configurations. They could, they could uh, set it on uh, 20 inch, 15 inch rows, I think, all the way out to 30 uh, for planting uh, our, our no-till beans. And I'm sure they could put it on 38 inch rows if you, if you wanted to plant corn with that. But yes, Alice Chalmers was first in the market with a commercial planter that worked. So, um what year did you get involved in coming up with these colders and everything? I knew you were going to ask the question. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say the late 60s, mid to late 60s. Yeah. Mr. Young, I think, came out with that or did that in what, 1961? Yes, yeah, you caught me now. I should know uh, exactly the year, yeah. but I don't, 61, 62. And, and I started at H&R in 1964, so that was prior okay. to my being there, but it, would, it wasn't too long after that. 
And I've said I wasted the money, but people have cautioned me and said, no, you learned a lot. <laughs> well, uh, you learned from your mistakes. Yeah. And today, when we look at uh, all the different components that are, that are on the market, and a lot of those are improvements, but when we plant corn, we want to create a uniform and optimum environment for the seed so we'll get uniform emergence. If we get uniform emergence, that's about all to me the planter will do for the grower. And those elements are uh, uniform depth, uniform seed soil contact, uniform moisture, and uniform temperature. Spacing is important, but it's not as important as the first four. And uh, we, we knew that. We, we played with different things and and we could go back after it emerged and see. And we'd have customers come in and say, I lost one of the tines off and I went ahead and planted and I went back three days later when it was up and they could, they, so we could see a visible, visible difference after the crop came up. There, there's a number of people today that still like this old white planter for no-till and they, they seem to be doing something right with that planter that they had for no-till. They did, of course, their first planter was a 543. It was the first step. But then Deckler introduced the 5100, and it had the, the dual gauge wheels that Oliver had patented on a beet planter sometime in the 50s. But it had a walk-in beam so that uh, when you, if you hit an obstruction on one side, it raised the unit only half the height of the obstruction. Mm -hmm. Better depth control. It was a plateless planter, uh, an air, air, plan, uh, air seed selection, not mechanical delivery. Uh, it was ahead of its time. It was, it was an excellent planter. And for three years in a row, we sold more planters than any white dealership in the U.S. because wow. we're right in the middle of no-till. We have to be at the right place at the right time. Right. And uh, we got well acquainted with Deckler. Uh, I, after Deckler moved from white allied to uh, Kinsey, he called me one day and said, do you know Eugene Keaton? I said, of course. And he said, I'd like you to call him and see if he'll meet with me. And I said, are you kidding? I was, you know, you have his contact information. <laughs> He said, I need you to do what I ask. And I said, okay. Yeah. And he had helped me a lot in the past. Yeah. And those two guys met at my office in Hopkinsville. Each one of them had a brush meter, mm -hmm. a bean meter. Right. Deckler had developed one, but Keaton had a patent. And they, I assume, used Keaton's patent. But of course, uh, Keaton developed the brush meter, the finger pickup mechanism, and the seed firmer. Is, is when and the, the finger unit, he, uh, he licensed the deer, I think. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Are you a Kinsey dealer? We are, yes. So what uh, what's the breakout for no-till planters between Case IH and Kinsey for you? We still, where we have the Kinsey contract at a location, we still sell more Kinsey planters than we do Case, but we, we have, of course, the Case contract for all locations and we don't with the Kinsey's. So we, we do sell more kin, more case planters today than we do Kinsey's. But if, if we had a Kinsey contract at all locations, there might be some difference there. But case has come a long way. They've, uh, uh, they've developed a planter that a lot of people want. They've done some things right. When we started No-Till Farmer in uh, 1972, it was very new to me. And I, I'm the only editor of, there's been a No-Till Farmer and we started in 72, but we didn't own it for 10 years. I worked for somebody else, but uh, I remember the first trip I made, we went to uh, Herndon and we went to see a number of people, including Wes Hunt besides Harry Young. And one of the things I remember, and it's, I've been back since, and maybe a half mile or so from the 
young farm. There's an old shack there, and it used to be a general store. Yeah. And they took us in there for lunch, and they made bologna sandwiches. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I believe I've seen a, a picture of that in a magazine. Yeah. I saw that last year. And that place was on Highway 41A. Now, well, I think it's just an old shack now. We yeah, saw it when yeah. we went down there. Yeah. And some of our people have been down there in the winter, and they said farmers used to come in and spit tobacco juice on the on the stove. It was in the middle of the <laughs> steam up. I've been to the Young Farm a number of a number of times, and always uh, learned something there. And uh, let's talk a little about double cropping. It's still strong in that area, right? Yes. Almost 100% of our wheat in Western Kentucky is followed by double crop beans. Uh, of course, our footprint is a little bit bigger today. And sure. in Southern Indiana, uh, some of those guys have quit growing wheat. But we have very little corn behind corn. It's, it's corn, wheat, and double crop beans. Well, the, the price of wheat talked a lot of people out of uh, putting it in a rotation, but there's some real benefits to having it in the, in the rotation. And um, the, the Eastern Tallgrass Prairie runs into, into Kentucky. In that area, there's, and I saw some figures from UK the other day, our double crop beans out yield full season beans by two to three bushel average over a period of about, of about 10 years. And when we first saw that, different people looked at what was going on. We thought it was nematodes and other things, but no one's ever figured that out. And, but our full season bean yields in that eastern tall grass prairie area, this Christian County where I live, our soybean yields, full season beans, are still less than the area along the Ohio River uh, in northern Kentucky and southern Indiana. That's we just uh, we don't make the soybean yield that they make it with full season beans. So. Early on in the 70s, there, there, was, there was barley in that area, and that barley would come off a week or 10 days earlier than the corn, but the price of barley kind of pushed it out everybody to wheat, or yields did too. Right. There were, yes, there were a few people who grew barley, and some would say they, they did that so they get their combine set and everything ready to go for wheat. <laughs> I don't know how logical or practical that was, but yes, I don't know of anyone growing barley today in, in that area. Irrigation in that area. Is a lot of it now. I mean, the youngs have got the youngs have a dozen pip center pivots or right. so. It depends on their uh, water availability, but there's still not that much irrigation in, in Christian County. Uh, but yes, the youngs have it, and uh, most of those are wells that, uh, that where, the, where we irrigate. I think they're pumping some out of the river because they are piping at quite a distance to a couple of their Yeah, there's, there's a small. Yeah, you can call it a river. It's a yes, it's adequate for irrigation. So, if you were looking at tillage practices in your H and R, just we seeing more minimum tillage or conventional tillage or no tillage, or it depends on the location. When I when I see uh, the fields today, that and the farmers call it no till. Uh, the, I look in the residue on the ground. No, it's not no till. Of course, what happened, <clears throat> we started getting a buildup of residue uh, when we went to the BT variety of corns and, sure. and other things caused that. And so then we started having to manage the residue. And that's when the so-called vertical till machine uh, became prevalent. And uh, we'll, we still see a lot of the, those machines running, uh, but then we still are seeing a lot of bare ground when we plant the corn. So we. 
we, we don't have that many, as many people as I would call true no-tillers. Now, all of our, our, our double crop beans are no-tilled. Now we're seeing more strip-till. And today we have, uh, we have a strip-till rigs that we rent to farmers and, to t and we're not trying to sell it. We're, they say, take it to yield and see if, how it works. And then uh, we're, we're seeing more uh, seeding. We have a fragile pan under most of the soils in, in western Kentucky. Well, the, the demo units, you go back to the 70s, and a lot of soil and water conservation districts bought no-till planters just to get people to give it a try. Right. That's right. And, you know, it's a, it's a big investment in something you don't know it's going to work on your farm. Right, right. We, I, I think most of those were probably Alice Chalmers planters, so we didn't, we didn't get to participate in that. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I remember in uh, 72 was, um, of course, most people said, yes, we have a no-till planter. Well, it was just a conventional planter that they put colders on. And I remember one of the most honest companies was Case IH. Well, it was Case at that time, and uh, because they had a planter out and they said it's going to work for no-till, and then they took it off the market. And I called up and asked why, and they said, because it doesn't work in no-till. And I don't remember what model no. it was, okay. but for a few years, okay. they just said, nope, okay. this isn't going to okay. work. We got to figure out something better. Yeah. Cover crops, got them in your area or not? Yes, uh, we're seeing more of that. And we, we attended uh, your meeting last year uh, where that was discussed. And, and I came away with the perception we're behind the industry there. But yes, we do have people that are, that are doing that. And, uh, and I think the trend line is we're going to see a lot more of that. Someone told me today about somebody in Oregon that was raising multiple crops. One of them was hairy vetch, mm -hmm. which we use as a cover crop in front of tobacco. But that's an oxious weed today mm -hmm. for whatever reason, but, so we don't see that. But cover crops are, are coming back. And uh, of course, we're, we're looking at the roots, where the roots penetrate the fragipan. Most every place we have a fragipan in Western Kentucky. And of course, we used to call it a plow pan, didn't know any better, but, uh, uh, and some could have been, but I think more of them situations were fragipans than, than a plow pan. Well, it's like annual, annual ryegrass. I mean, we do a lot, you gotta be careful with it. Australians would tell you annual ryegrass is nothing but a weed and then mm -hmm. bugs them, but. Mm -hmm. uh, We've been making it work here in a lot of areas. It's amazing on cover crops because uh, you can have something as simple as just wheat or rye mm -hmm. bin out of your own bin, or you can get something that's 15 different species all together. And you know, and there's differences. You got you got differences in roots that go down farther, and some produce nitrogen. And uh, I saw somebody last spring, and he was using sunflowers. And I said, "What do sunflowers do for you?" And he says, "It makes the neighbors smile." <laughs> okay. We've seen uh, some people that uh, are using the tillage radishes. Right. In fact, that's that's increasing in our area. The use of, of that crop. Steve Groff, who uh, from Pennsylvania pioneered the radish. Okay. You should say hello okay. to him if you get a chance. Okay. We'll rejoin Frank and Ross in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, 
increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lester with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Back in the early 80s, we looked at how much labor could be saved with no-till. And uh, somehow we came up in 1983 with a chart that asked, how many acres could you no-till with 732 hours of available labor? And I think looking back, that's the amount of labor you could have saved with a certain amount of uh, no-till crops. Anyway, with the moldboard plowing with 732 acres, you could add another 600 acres to your farming operation with that 732 hours. With a disc system, you could go to 871 acres, but what was really interesting and intriguing is if you went to no-till and you had 732 extra hours of labor, you could no-till an extra 1,200 acres. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Lester and Russ Morgan. When it, when it comes to selling no-till planters today, what's your most popular number of rows? 16 row with with interplant, 30 inch corn, 15 inch beans, uh, 24 row. 24 planter. row. Are you putting colders on them or not? Probably half and half. Okay. With with the Kinsey planters, we sell almost all of those with no-till coulters. With the case, maybe half with and half without. Well, Case was kind of the pioneer that came out that said you don't necessarily need colders under all conditions yes. 15, 20 years ago. Yes. And that depends on the job to some degree, my opinion. I'm not an agronomist, but you do with residue management. And we still think the combine is, is important. And when I, when I talked about uh, the conditions for, for the uniform washer, uniform temperature, uh, that has to do with residue distribution. So if the combine messes that up, then the planter's not gonna correct that. So that's the reason we think that is, is so critical that we get that right. And I heard today the uh, presentation on the, uh, the chopping corn heads and we've, uh, that has kind of backed off. Uh, we, we've sold more chopping corn heads five years ago than we do today, but then we're far enough south that we get rapid decomposition because of the soil temperatures versus further north. But then when I listened to that today, I thought we, we, may, we may need to go back and look at that. And uh, we may have be costing yield there by, by doing that. We went down, it must be five or six years ago, and uh, it was an anniversary issue of No-Till Farmer. And we took, and Howard Martin took us down to Eugene Keaton's place on the lake. Big fans. His, uh, his uh, patents made him a little money. He had a very nice house. Of course, he's deceased now, but we had a great conversation with Howard and Eugene together. I saw that. You, you, yeah, yeah, I wrote an article on that. Yeah. yeah. He was a neat guy. Did he ever tell you how he came up with the idea of the uh, corn meter? No, tell us. He, he told me that he was uh, sitting on a load of corn, they were shelling corn and he had his knife out whittling and he had a corn stalk and he trimmed one of the layers off that stalk about the size of a popsicle stick. And he took two of them and he pinched them together, pushed it down in that load of corn and squeezed it and he could pick up one grain. Huh. And that's how he came up with that idea. Wow. But the guy was just full of ideas. He actually made a different uh, rasp bar for a cylinder machine uh, that he, 
he made one that he ran, but I don't, I don't know if he ever patented that or not, but a lot of good ideas. Well, while he had a real impact with the finger unit and the brush meter, he probably made more money off his Keaton seed firmer, right? It was, yes. And Just it was a, a piece of plastic. <laughs> simple thing, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and he and Howard were, they didn't live that far apart. Right. Uh, they, they were neighbors. Well, there's a great story about Howard we've done, too, about how he's practically broke farming and had to do something different. Mm -hmm. Had some hard times and no, you, yeah. you credit no-till and manufacturing was saving his career. And in fact, he told, he told me once about how things got tough and his wife was running a landscape service or something. Mm -hmm. And she had him running some yard implement and he said, this wasn't the way I thought I was going to run my life. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read the article that you published yeah. on, on that. Uh, he's, but he's a, he's a humble guy that'll tell you about things like that. Right. Uh, of course, we went through the decade of the 80s, and uh, we saw that uh, hurt a lot of people. Uh, and again, I've, I've given you, uh, you, you have records that I saved in 1985 when I was uh, chairman of the White Farm Dealer Council the year they went bankruptcy. And you learn a lot. Uh, and some of it is very unpleasant. You, you don't want to believe this, but. Uh, well, those were the years of early, early 80s when uh, Secretary of Ag Butts was saying, plant fence roll to fence roll, and then Jimmy Carter took our Russian market away and said, we're not gonna sell anything he, to Russia. He put an embargo on it. He's, yeah. that's, uh, he was a good man, is, is a good man, but he, he hurt me financially worse than any decision I think any president ever made with that one decision, that, that was. Terrible, and interest was about 18%. Uh, that was, uh, was tough years. We bought No-Till Farmer and another magazine in 1981 from the place I worked. Anyway, the contract said, it was a, it was a, a variable rate of interest. And the contract said the most they, we would have to pay was 14%. Well, this is when interest rates got to 23%. We thought we were pretty lucky to have that in the contract. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So what'd you do before you went to work in the dealership? I worked two years in a packing house. No correlation at all between that and the farm equipment. <laughs> well, the correlation was you didn't want to spend a career in the packing house. Well, true. <laughs> but now I worked in the, pro in the packaging department. So I learned some things about marketing, yeah. didn't realize at the time displays and things like that, that does apply. But no, no, I learned I didn't, that wasn't what I wanted to do the rest of my life. I edited a magazine for beef cattle and hog producers at one time early on, so I've been in some packing plants. Yes, yes. I, I didn't work on the kill floor. That's If somebody would read something, I don't want to claim something that, <laughs> right. that didn't happen, but uh, I worked in, the, in the, where they packaged and that, that type thing. We learned the importance of displays and marketing, and, uh, and that was, but it's, I, I have no regrets. I made, I made good money for what I for that time sure. frame, uh, so I, I have no regrets with that. But I had no regrets ever about leaving either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up on a dairy farm and milking cows and lugging hay bales is what made me an editor. Yeah. And my mother had been an English teacher, and a farmer down the road turned me on to photography. And my dad told me once, "You just decided it was easier to tell others how to farm than to do it yourself." And I never been on. I've been on a farm in all fifty states, and I've never been on a farm I didn't learn something. I've been on a few I didn't learn a lot, and I've been on some that I saw nothing but mistakes. But every one was a learning. Right, right. 
I did grow up on a farm. It was a small farm. We had uh, uh, some corn that would primarily fed the livestock, fed a little of it, hogs and cows that we milked for a, a family use, but it was a small farm. It's 357 acres, but it was not all tillable. It was just a family farm. And, uh, so why didn't no-till tobacco catch on? I don't know the answer to that. Well, one thing, uh, of course, no-till was made possible by a Roundup resistant crops. Right, right. And I made it easier. Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, we didn't see much no-till corn until we got Roundup resistant corn in, in the soybeans. But with tobacco, I'd, I'd say that'd be a big part of it. And because uh, of government regulations, they may not have been able to spray that with different things. I don't know. Uh, the, the answer to that. But, uh, well, one of, one of the advantages of no-till um, tobacco was you had that residue on the surface and where you had these clay soils. When you were doing conventional, the clay soils, the red would come up and ruin the leaves on the bottom, which was a benefit with no-till, but that, that doesn't mean it was going to catch on. Of course, that, that industry is, 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 has declined and it's, it's going to decline further. We're uh, we, our growers now grow for by with a contract, and one of the contractors has already told them they will see cuts up to forty percent for this next year. Wow! It's it's a financial blow to some of our locations because all the growers today are are bigger. We don't have any small growers today. And a lot of tobacco's grown is grown for the foreign market. Yes. Anyway. Yes, and then there some of the foreign markets are some of the we're able to grow tobacco outside this country today that's suitable for the foreign markets too. So that's, that industry is going to decline. We're hoping the hemp industry is going to take up some of the slack uh, left by tobacco, but we're still struggling to see which direction that's going. We have some growers today that have not been paid, and that's, that's a, a major concern. Right. Hemp's going to be interesting. There's going to be some people make some money, and there's going to be some people that lose some money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I, you mentioned Wesley. I called Wesley recently. Uh, we had a grower that wanted to put a forge hedge and forge chopper on the front of a tractor on a three-point hitch like they use in Europe, load mm -hmm. over the top of the tractor into a baler behind it. And uh, we're, we're looking at it, but we're not sure we want to import a, a head or chopper from Europe without parts support and all that. <laughs> we're not sure the legal issues that we get into there with import restrictions so but he's a he's still a valuable resource he's and he is interested in new technology uh, he comes in occasionally telling me what what he's been looking at and uh, he's, uh, his mind never relaxes he's always thinking about something so you run dealerships how are the dealerships going to change over the few next next few years we're talking now of uh, tractors that we could run 24 hours a day. Autonomous tractors. And you probably don't want to hear this, but you know, the guy had three tractors. If he had one that he ran 24 hours a day, he wouldn't need three, would he? <laughs> he, he wouldn't. Uh, the other thing that, and I was at a meeting not too long ago, and the guy said rather than having uh, two huge tractors, right. he might have smaller tractors that would be more efficient. It might cost less to do it that way because labor becomes less of an issue. If he can have one guy theoretically that's operating all three of those in one location, 
the autonomous tractor, I think, is on the horizon. But I'm hearing some things today on fertility. And, and I don't know enough of the chemistry and the biology behind that to understand what's going on, except I'm listening. That could be a major change with oh, what absolutely. this last right. speaker was talking about. Uh, in our industry, uh, of course, all of the equipment has become more complicated. Uh, the diagnostics are, are critical. Uh, finding good diagnosticians is, is a, a challenge for our industry today. Uh, and I think, we're, I think the internet not, not will, it has already changed uh, part supplies. Uh, we don't know what part sales we lose today on the internet. Uh, it's, it's, everybody today is, is, is getting on the phone and ordering this thing. We do. Uh, and our, our customers doing the same things. And in exchange of information, it, this is a good example here today. I'm a lurker on the internet. I, I'm on Ag Talk uh, almost daily and I don't post, but I'm looking to see what the world is saying. And there are some very informed people out there and you can get information on almost any subject you want in certain places. And uh, that, I don't see that changing. No, it'll get even more so. We were talking about changes in precision and uh, our, our farm equipment magazine, maybe five years ago, ran a cover that came from Case IH. It was an art drawing. And I, there was a guy in a pickup truck running four or five combines in the same field and the combines didn't even have any cabs on them. They okay. didn't need it with the guy mm -hmm. running it. Right. And we're not there yet, but... Right, the technology's there. Right. And it's, it's the same when auto steers came out. Farmers were kind of afraid to buy it because they thought at the end of the field, if something went wrong, it was going to run in the ditch. Right, right. <laughs> so how are your dealerships uh, geared up for precision? We have in, we endorsed precision 10 years ago. We have a precision specialist. Uh, some of them will cover two or three stores. In some cases, we've got one store will have two precision specialists at that location. I'm, I'm old school. I would like the salesman to have the product knowledge required to tell you what you need on a planter. But I'm naive uh, with the changes in technology. They, they haven't kept up with that. So in our cases, uh, the precision people are involved helping the salespeople uh, with the customer when, during the, the buying process, not just when the customer has a problem. Our, our whole world has become more complex. Uh, when I started in 1964, you had the 1850 Oliver, the 190 XT Isle Chalmers, the 806 International, uh, the 4020 Deer, and the G1000 Moline, and the, what, the 1100 Mass or something. You could take a 15-year-old kid, and with a little bit of training, he could take that tractor to the field and make it do anything it was capable of doing. Today, that tractor is very complex. And then uh, we have the, the sprayer and the planter uh, and the combine. The combine is complex today. All that, that equipment is more complex and it, it takes a while for those salespeople to get up to speed uh, to, recommend, to make a, a good recommendation to that customer on what they need to do their job or to be sure they know about all the technology that's available on that machine to make them aware of it so it'll do their job. Uh, that, that's a change. 
uh, and we're struggling with that. I think as an industry, I know we are as a dealership, I think the industry is struggling with that today. You mentioned earlier combines and uh, no-till really starts with the combine because you, you've got to spread the residue the full width of the combine. Yes. And we've seen some changes there because you go back 10, 15 years, there was a real market for aftermarket straw spreaders and choppers and now the manufacturers are getting it. But when you've got a 40 foot combine, it's not easy to spread the chaff or the straw the whole width. And and yes, and companies are running 50-foot uh, drapers today. Uh, I think Deere is running one, and I know that McDonald is running one. They're about ready to introduce. Yeah, it becomes more of a challenge uh, with the wider heads, but it, the importance is still there, to your, to your point. But the, the technology has improved. So you mentioned uh, technicians, and it's tough to get them. Do you have kids who have grown up on farm? Uh, are they good candidates for tech jobs, or doesn't it matter? Uh, they they need to be aware. It helps if they're aware of of the farm background mm -hmm. and uh, and culture. Right. But today, in Christian County, we think nine farms produce eighty percent of the grain. Wow. And you're going to find the same consolidation wherever you go. Right. And uh, there's not that many farm kids that are coming off the farm today that they go into a dealership. Uh, I, I've read that in the year 1900, there were 186 farm tractor manufacturers in the U.S. By 1935, there were 16. There were eight when I started in the business. Today, there are three. That's your trend line. If you look at us, same trend line. Right. If you look at production, same trend line. We attend the same workshops that other people do on workplace development. That everybody is looking at that for that, that same labor pool. And uh, I was at one the other day and somebody stated that in the trucking industry, <clears throat> in some segments of that, they have a 50% annual turnover in drivers. Now we don't have that kind of turnover, but it's very difficult to get the kid that can develop the diagnostic skills that we need. And uh, we, we struggle with that. We, uh, we pay up to $30,000 in tuition for a kid that completes a, a course that we approve. And they, that's paid back over a period of time if they, if they go to work for us. But those people today in this industry can make $100,000 a year. We're told that we need to start at, at the high school level uh, to try to get those kids and not, not wait until they get into a trade school someplace. And uh, we, we struggle, we struggle with that. In our company, we've got about 40 employees and we have a number, the ones that grew up on a farm, there's only about two or three of us. They come to us with questions. What you have to watch is, I remember what was going on in the 50s, which doesn't have anything to do with farming today. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. right. I, I serve as advisor at the local community college, their tech center, and they asked me one night after a dinner meeting with students after the dinner, that. Dean asked me impromptu, he said, tell these young people what you look for in technicians. I said the same thing looking for in the COO, integrity, work ethic, uh, positive attitude, and do you fit the group? <laughs> and uh, one of the ladies was kind of condescending. She said, those are social skills. And I said, I understand. What you need to understand, that's what we start with. But it still helps if you know that farm culture. If he grew up on a farm, he knows the importance of getting that machine going when it's down. 
we, we can teach that. If we get those, to me, those, those traits are more important than having grown up on the farm. Years and years ago, there was a big printing company that started in our area and they hired mainly farm kids to, who knew nothing about printing because they liked their work ethic. Yeah. And, they, and the other thing was they wanted to teach them their way, which they thought was better than bringing someone from another printing company who already had habits. Gotcha. Integrity, work ethic. Exactly. The work ethic is yep. all four of those are important. Right. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You'll find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. And before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. A reader question asks us, how long does it take to see the benefits of no-till once a farmer is converted from conventional tillage to no-till? Well, there's no easy answer to that. Some people say you could see some in improvements and uh, benefits within a year. Some people say three years, but to really get the benefits, you probably need five years where you get the earthworms and the underground livestock working for you. In fact, you might see a moderate yield decline in the first one or two years, but after five years, you should see the real benefit that's of no-till. And the big benefit's not so much with yield, but the extra profit per acre. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Ross Morgan of H&R AgriPower for today's conversation. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakegerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.